Well, we are in the last two weeks of a series that we've been in for over a year now. Uh, this week and next week is our, is our last two weeks in the Gospel of John, the series He Is. And I, I just want to go out on a limb here this morning, and I want to ask you, and I want to ask for some interaction here, as you think back over the last 14, 15 months of this series, who have we seen Jesus to be through this series? Who is Jesus according to the Gospel of John? And, and I'm going to give us a head start here from the very first sermon very first week, last July, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word of God. That, that, that's who we know Jesus to be. He, he, is, he was with God, and He was God, and He became flesh, and He reveals God perfectly to us. He is the Word. So I want to ask you, as you, as you think back through, and you can look at your Bibles, you can jog your memory, but, but who is Jesus according to the Gospel of John? Who have we seen Jesus to be? The Lamb of God. John sees Jesus as, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We, we saw that way back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, but then the last few weeks we have seen that culminated in him actually bearing our sins as the Lamb of God, taking away our sins. And, and so what John said at the beginning, we have seen play out at the end. So he, he is the Lamb of God. Who else is Jesus? Who is Jesus, according to the Gospel of John? He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. He, without Jesus, there is no way to the Father. But, but because he perfectly reveals who the Father is to us, and because he died and rose again, we can have life with the Father. We can, we can go to the Father through Jesus Christ. That is who he is. Yes, what else? He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Now, when, when Jews heard that, they thought immediately of passages like Psalm 2, where, where the Messiah, the King of Israel, was, was known as the Son of God. God said, today you are my Son. But, but Jesus comes, and, and he takes it even further, doesn't he? And he? He says, I and the Father are one. He calls God his Father. He says that he is his Son, and the, and the Jews want to stone him for it, but he, he claims to be fully the Son of God. That's right, who is, who is Jesus? And any other weeks that you remember as we've gone through the Gospel of John, that, that, that this is who he is. He is divine. The vine. He's, he's divine and the vine, right? <laughs> he is divine, but he is the vine. He, John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And when he says that, he, he's saying, I'm, I'm the true vine. Israel was called to be a vine that would bear fruit for God, but Israel failed in that. But I am the true vine who perfectly pleases God. And if you're connected to me, and my life comes into your life, and you abide in me, and I abide in you, then you will bear fruit that pleases God. And so he calls us into this dependent relationship on himself. He is the vine. Let's get one or two more here. He's the, he's the good shepherd. Someone said he's the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for sheep, and no one snatches his sheep out of his hand. And, you know, I've realized since we looked at that passage in John chapter 10, how many times have we seen Jesus be a good shepherd in John chapters 11 through the end to his disciples, protecting the disciples, helping the disciples, promising the disciples, comforting the disciples? He is a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and who's, who leads his sheep well. Yeah. What, let's get one more. Who is Jesus? The risen king. That's a good place to end because that, that's where we are right now. He is, he is the risen king. We saw that Jesus is the king, 
He, he, he is the king of Israel. He is the king of kings. He's the sacrificial king who lays down his life. He is the perfect king because he, he cares for his subjects. He, he's good. He's loving. He's just. He's righteous. But, but he's not only the perfect sacrificial king, but he's the risen king who doesn't stay dead. But he's the king who dies and then comes back to life and gives eternal life to all who believe in him. This is who Jesus is. And we could go on and on and on, and maybe we should go on and on and on, because it is wonderful to meditate on who Jesus is. In this morning's passage, John culminates his message about who Jesus is with these words. He says, these things have been written, as in the Gospel of John, this this Gospel has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. This is why John wrote this gospel. He wrote so that that those who read it will come to this conclusion. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. And, And everything we just said is part of what that means. Everything we just said about who Jesus is falls into that reality that, that all of that is what we should understand when we say Jesus is the Christ. When we say he's the Christ, we say he is the word. He is the lamb of God. He is the true Israel. He is the light of the world. He is the door to the sheep. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the great I am. He is the Christ, the son of God. But John didn't just write that for, for people to know that he believed it. John wrote, why? So that you may believe so that you may believe that he is the Christ. That's his purpose. John is writing, on on, on one hand, what we see right there is he is writing to those who don't believe. He is writing to those who who don't know, those who haven't put their trust in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I'm writing this so that you would believe that he is the Christ. And so the Gospel of John is very evangelistic. And it's any wonder why how how many people have ever handed out a a Gospel tract and what it is, it's the Gospel of John, right? It's the Gospel of John because John was written for unbelievers to, to, to realize who Jesus is and to put their faith in him so they may have life. And, and we've seen that many times throughout this book, that, that John is writing so that those who don't believe would believe. But, but today, what, what's interesting about our text today is that this purpose statement, which encompasses the whole Gospel of John, is put on the end of a story that's not about an unbeliever, but it's about a believer. He he tags this on to the end of of this account of a believer who was not believing, of of a disciple who was struggling. What that tells us is that the Gospel of John was not just written evangelistically, though it was, but it was also written for all who believe that we may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we can have life in his name. Because faith is not this static thing that just happens one day and then you move on. Like like you got saved and then you move on. No, faith is a continuing reality in the Christian life. If if you don't continue to believe, you will not have eternal life. Faith continues and and we need to persevere in faith. And John is writing so that believers can continue to have their eyes moved toward Christ, see who Jesus is and continue to believe by seeing him. And by knowing who he is. And so, so this morning the reality is that if you're an unbeliever, you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ so you can have life in his name. And if you're a believer, 
You need to continue to believe. You need to continue to look at Jesus and continue to put your trust in who he is. Because if we take our eyes off of Christ, we will not continue in faith. And so John writes this book to call us to faith and to continuing faith in Jesus. And so let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and our text today is John 24, John 20, verses 24 through 31. John 20, 24 through 31. Jesus has risen again. He has appeared to Mary Magdalene. He has appeared to ten of his disciples. But in this text, we, we hear about one more disciple that he has not appeared to yet. John 20, starting verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This text is really shows us two, there's, there's two sections that we can look at as we, as we walk through it, and, and the first section is really the story of, of Thomas's faith. Uh, we, we see this, this, this story of, of Thomas and his unbelief and, and Jesus coming to him and him coming to the point of confessing to Christ who he is. And, and then what we see is, is a few verses that relate to our faith. We see Thomas's faith and then, and then we see how that relates to our faith today. And so we're just going to walk through those two sections together, Thomas's faith and our faith. And the story of Thomas's faith begins with unbelief in Jesus. Begins with unbelief in Jesus. Verses 24 and 25. Now, now remember last week, we, Jesus' disciples saw Jesus. They, they were locked in a room. They were afraid. For, because Jesus had died, and now his body was gone. And, and, and they were sure that people were going to think they stole the body. And, they, and, they're, and they're afraid, and they're locked in the room. And what happens? Jesus comes to them through locked doors and says, peace be with you. And he, and he shows them his scars, and they, they rejoice, and they are glad when they realize this, this really is a Jesus. He is alive. But here we find out that Thomas was not with them. We don't know why. Let's just say he was running an errand, but Thomas wasn't there when it happened. And so when when Jesus leaves the, the disciples in their exuberance, they, they go find Thomas and they, and they tell Thomas, Thomas, we've, we've seen the Lord. Thomas, he's alive. Thomas, Jesus is not dead anymore. He's risen from the dead. 
For Thomas, though, even the eyewitness testimony of his ten closest friends could not convince him. You know, Jesus didn't just die in his sleep one night. He wasn't just sick like Lazarus and, 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 and died, but, but had a preserved body. Jesus was crucified. Jesus' body was mutilated. His hands and side were pierced through with nails and spear. He was brutally executed to the, to the point where he was beyond form, beyond semblance. And, and they're saying Jesus is alive and, and, and you're saying that he's, he's risen from the dead? For Thomas, it was more likely that they saw a ghost than that Jesus was actually alive. And so he makes this emphatic declaration, unless I see for myself, unless I see for myself the the holes in his hands where the nails pierced through and and the place in his side where where the spear was, unless I see that for myself and I touch it for myself, I will never believe. The story before us is why Thomas has gone down in history with the unfortunate nickname, Doubting Thomas. If it were me, I would much rather be remembered as the rock. You know, Peter the rock. Or, or, or a son of thunder, you know. But, but Thomas gets doubting Thomas. That, that's how we remember him. And it's, it's unfortunately stuck with him, right? But I want us to remember something about Thomas before we just look at him and say, doubter. All right, turn back with me to John chapter 11. Turn back with me to John chapter 11. This is the first time we ever see or hear Thomas in any personal way. Jesus' friend, Lazarus, has died. Jesus delayed to go there because Jesus' plan the whole time was to go and raise him from the dead. And so Jesus tells the disciples, we got to go to Judea. We, gotta, we have to go to Judea because, because Lazarus is dead and I'm, I'm going to wake him up. But there's one problem with this plan. Right? The disciples were begging him not to go because in Judea, the leaders wanted to kill Jesus. And so the disciples said, Jesus, why would you go there? They want to kill you. Don't, don't go. That's a suicide mission. But, but Jesus insists that we need to go. This is what God has called us to do. And who speaks up for the disciples but Thomas? Look in verse 16. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go that we may die with him. And here's what we learn about Thomas in that moment. Though he has no clue what Jesus is up to, he trusts him. Though he doesn't understand Jesus, he believes in him. He's willing to put his life in danger's way if Jesus is calling him to do it. When all the other disciples are saying, don't go, Thomas takes the lead and says, let's go and die with him because we have put all our eggs in Jesus' basket. Thomas believed in Jesus, and, and, and we know it for sure because in John 17, Jesus himself said, they have believed that you sent me. They have received the word about me. And so let's not look at John 20 and think anything except Thomas believed in Jesus. He trusted in him. So, so while we think about doubting Thomas, we're not looking at a lost person. We're looking at a believer. We're looking at a disciple. And what this helps us also know is that when Thomas says, I will never believe 
we shouldn't hear him through our 21st century naturalistic framework. Like, Thomas, is not, Thomas has not been sitting home reading David Hume on miracles and, 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 and thinking to himself, well, David Hume says miracles aren't possible, and, and so I, I, no, that, that can't be. He's not, he's not some intellectual philosopher just hearing this report about Jesus saying, no, that's not possible. Don't you know that, that reason that reason would tell us that's not possible. So don't you, don't you know that that's old news? That's how that's how the ancients thought. No, when Thomas says, "I will never believe," we need to recognize that this is the response not of an intellectual skeptic, but this is the response of someone who is devastated. This is the response of, of someone who, as I said, had put all their eggs in Jesus' basket and came up empty. This is the response of someone who had put all their hopes. And Jesus and saw him brutally executed. This is, this is the response of someone who is not willing to let themselves feel hope again. They're, they're not going to go there again. They've been there and done that and it ended badly and Thomas will not believe unless he has the most definitive proof because he is not going to let himself have a glimmer of hope again. That's Thomas. That, that's his unbelief. But, but we move from there and from that statement to the second section of, of this text for Thomas, and that is his encounter with Jesus. So you can turn back to John chapter 20 and, and Thomas's encounter with Jesus. Look at verse 26 with me. John 20, 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Does that sound familiar at all? That's exactly what happened a week before, isn't it? The doors were locked, Jesus comes, and he says, peace be with you. Jesus does exactly the same thing for Thomas that he did for the other disciples. And, And he declares peace. He doesn't come and rebuke Thomas. He doesn't come and say, you should have believed. Why didn't you trust your friends? He he comes and the first words out of his mouth are, peace be with you. You know, ten days earlier, Jesus had promised the disciples, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus said that ten days earlier, on a Thursday evening in an upper room, and then he went to the cross. And he suffered, and he died and he bore the sins of the world as the Lamb of God, and then three days later he rose again from the dead, and, and, and now Jesus comes and declares peace, and here's why he declares peace, because Jesus has purchased peace with God. Through his death for sin, Jesus has taken away the enmity. He's, he's taken away the wrath. He's taken away every obstacle to peace with God that stood in our way. And now he comes and he says, you may have peace now. I died for sins. I rose again. And, and, and with the, my blood purchasing your peace, he comes to Thomas and he says, Thomas, peace be with you. Peace be with you. I have overcome the world. There is for, forgiveness in me. But notice, he doesn't even stop there with Thomas. What does he do next? He, he says, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
notice the condescending love of Jesus here. That, that, that he addresses Thomas at the very point of his hardness and his unbelief. He comes to Thomas and, and he gives him the very thing he asked for. And he appeals in the most personal, compelling way to Thomas's unbelief. And he says, don't disbelieve, Thomas. Believe. Believe. I died and now I'm alive and in me there is true and everlasting peace. Believe, Thomas. Touch my wounds and believe. We don't, we don't know if Thomas even touched his wounds. What we know is that he responded with this confession. The first disciple, doubting Thomas, is the first disciple to ever say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. He's the first one, the one, the one who would not believe, first one to say, this is my God. This is my God. We need to see three things about what he confesses here. First, it is a personal confession, isn't it? It's a personal confession. My Lord. My God. He comes into a personal place with this. He recognizes that Jesus is the one he needs to submit to. Jesus is the one he needs to worship. It's not just a reality out there about Jesus. This is a personal reality for Thomas. My Lord, my God. Second, it's, it's not just a personal confession. It is a submissive confession. It is a repentant confession. He says, my Lord, my Lord. When he says that, he, he, he is saying, you are, you are my master. You are my king. You are the Lord of all. I, I, I have no other lords beside you. I, I, I give you all I am and all I have. You are my Lord. And he, he submits his whole life to Jesus' lordship in this moment. Everything he has is Jesus's. All his eggs are back in Jesus' basket again for good. And then it's a worshipful confession, isn't it? He says, my God, my God. You know, whenever someone in Scripture thinks that you know, they're seeing God, but they're, but they're mistaken. Like, say it was Paul in Acts, or, or it was an angel in Revelation. How do they respond? But they always say, don't say that. Don't worship me. I'm not God. I'm just a man. I'm not God. I'm just an angel. There's none of that here. Thomas says, my God. He recognizes in this moment the reality that Jesus is not just from God. He's not just empowered by God. He's not just a representative of God, but that Jesus himself is God. He ascribes to Jesus the glory that is due the name of God. A, a personal, repentant, worshipful confession. And this is the confession that every believer makes. My Lord and my God. I come to you and I recognize that you are Lord, you are King, you are Master, and that you died and that you rose again, and I submit my whole life to you, and I give it all to you, and I surrender it all to you. You have all I am and all I have for all that you are, and you are God, and I worship you, and I adore you, and I find my joy in you, and I glorify you. You are the true God. 
This is the confession of faith. So Jesus delivers Thomas from unbelief to belief. He delivers him from rejection of his resurrection to confession of his lordship, from personal devastation to worshipful celebration, doesn't he? We see this transformation in Thomas. And and, and here's the thing, based on what we've seen so far, I want to stop here and I want to give not quite the main idea, but part one of the main idea. Okay, So this, this is main idea part one. Here's what we learn. Faith in Jesus comes from encountering Jesus. Faith in Jesus comes from encountering Jesus. Personal confession of Christ comes through personally experiencing the grace of Christ coming to you and conquering your unbelief. Submission to Jesus as Lord comes from encountering Jesus in his lordship. Worship of Jesus as God comes from beholding Jesus as God. Faith in Jesus comes through encountering Jesus in a personal way. That's what we learn from Thomas's story. That's, 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 why it here, well, that's why it's here, but this does leave us with a question, doesn't it? Leaves us with a question. If, if faith in Jesus comes through encountering Jesus, then how are we supposed to have faith? If faith in Jesus comes from encountering Jesus, then, then how are we supposed to encounter Jesus today? We can't, we can't put our fingers in the scars. We can't put our hand in his side. We don't see him. And so this question brings us then to the second part of this text. We have Thomas's faith, and then we have our faith. How, how, how does Thomas's faith and what, Thomas, what happens to Thomas here relate to our faith? Look in verse 29 how Jesus responds to Thomas's confession. Again, he doesn't deny it at all. He doesn't say, no, don't say that. Jesus receives the worship. Jesus receives the reality that he is Lord and God. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus draws a contrast here between the unique opportunity Thomas was given to see Jesus and believe and the reality that the blessing of eternal life is coming to those who who will believe without seeing. He's he's saying that there's going to be people who don't see me and they're going to believe and they're going to be blessed. So, that, that, as I just think about that, as, as that turns over my mind, my, my question is, is Jesus saying that we need to have blind faith? Is Jesus, is Jesus saying that, that, that he's calling people to believe in him with no compelling evidence, with, with, with no reason? He's just saying, just, just take a leap of faith, just, just blind faith, believe in me and you'll be blessed, and, and don't ask why. No, that's, that's not what he's saying, is it? Jesus knows that a time is coming where faith will come in a different way than it came to Thomas. You know, this whole concept of blind faith is, is not even a biblical reality. Because faith is what? It's the conviction of things not seen, right? It's the conviction of things not seen. So, so if you have biblical faith, you, you don't say, yeah, I believe, I have no idea why. No, no you say, I believe because I am convinced that it is true. I believe because I have assurance of my hope. But it's not based in seeing, is it? It's not, it's not based on evidence. It's not based on physical sight. So what is it based in then? Where does that leave us? And, and this is where I want us to see that this, this is the moment in the gospel that John chooses to come in and give us his purpose. He could have done it anywhere in the whole gospel. He could have done it at the very beginning, at the very end. But right here, he comes in 
And he, and he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, the Gospel of John is a book of signs. It's a book of signs. Signs that John specifically chose to fulfill his purpose. And let's think about the signs for a second. What, what, what signs has Jesus done? He, he turned water into wine. The, the very first sign he did at a wedding, he turned water into wine, and, and on top of that, the best wine anyone's ever had. Right? Je, Jesus healed an official son from, from a three days journey away. He, he, he spoke and healed him in, in the moment. Jesus went to a man who was lame his whole life and he made him walk and made him jump and made him leap. Jesus went to a man who was born blind and he gave him his sight. Jesus raised a man from the dead. And then the last sign. What is the last sign in the Gospel of John? Jesus died and rose again. That's the last sign. That, that, that is the culminating sign of who Jesus is. He died, and he's alive. He, he was crucified, and now he's in a resurrection body. And, and John says, I've written these things so that you may believe. And, and here's the thing, John, here, here's, what we need to, here's the connection. John wrote this book so that those who can't see, you and me, so that those who can't see Jesus physically would still encounter him through the word. He, he wrote this book so that those who, who need to encounter Jesus can still encounter him through the word, through the scriptures, and, and by encountering him and coming to believe that we would have eternal life. And so, so if you take these two parts, what does Thomas's faith teach us? It teaches us that faith in Jesus comes from encountering Jesus. And, and then what do we learn from what John says and from what Jesus says? We, we realize that, that the only way to encounter Jesus today is through the Word of God. The only way to encounter Jesus is through the Scriptures. It's through the Word. It's through the Gospel. And so faith in Jesus comes through encountering Jesus, and we encounter Jesus through the Word. Listen to Paul in Romans 10. He, he says, how are they to believe in him um, who, of whom they've never heard? And he says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And then listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. He's, he says to this church, though you have not seen him, you guys know it, you love him. You've not seen him, but you love him. Though you don't now see him, you believe in him, and you're filled with inexpressible joy. He says, you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So, so, so why do these people believe? Because they've heard the Word, and through hearing the Word, they have seen Jesus with the eyes of their hearts, and they have beheld Him, and they have encountered Him, and they have come to put their faith in Him. And, and though they don't see Him, they love Him. And they believe in Him, and they have hope in Him. This is what John is teaching us. This is John's purpose, to, to bring people to encounter Christ through the Word. In one sense, our situation is no different from Thomas's. Faith in Jesus comes through encountering Jesus. 
But how we encounter Jesus is different now, isn't it? We, we encounter him through the word. We encounter him through the scriptures. And through the scriptures, Jesus graciously comes to us. Here's what we need to see. I'm, I'm, we, we say we encounter him, but, but really, it's Christ encountering us, isn't it? As we open the scriptures, Jesus encounters us. Just as he encountered Thomas, he comes to us in grace and in love, and he, he speaks into our unbelief, and he powerfully appeals to our hearts through the scriptures, don't disbelieve, but believe. So how should we respond this morning to that reality then? First, there's just a few things. We, we need to recognize that at times we are all like doubting Thomas. We, we just need to recognize that, that we, we, we all are like doubting Thomas. We all have seasons of unbelief. We all have, we all have times of doubt. This past year, I can remember nights where I'm lying on my bed and I'm trying to go to sleep and, and my, my mind is just filled with the biggest, hugest thoughts about the world and about God and about how crazy what we believe is. And, and I fall asleep saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because we all have our flesh and the world and Satan battling Battling what God has done in us. Battling the faith that's in us. We, we all have this mixture of unbelief. None of us has a perfect faith. None of us has a perfect faith. None of us ever will have a perfect faith. And so this is for us. We, we need to recognize that. You may even be there right now this morning, that, that, that you are battling unbelief. You're afraid because you're doubting. You need to know that that's, that's not abnormal for a Christian, that that, that is real, that, that is part of the Christian life, that, that we're, we have times where, where unbelief seems to be unshakable, but it's not, because here's what we also know, that Jesus responds to our weakness, and he responds to our doubt, not by casting us out, but by coming to us and declaring, peace be with you. Jesus comes as a good shepherd and he knows our thoughts, he knows our hearts, and he, and he graciously comes to the point of unbelief and he restores our soul. Listen to this observation by J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle lived in the 1800s and he said, it is hard to imagine anything more tiresome and provoking than the conduct of Thomas. When even the testimony of ten faithful brethren had no effect on him, and he doggedly declared, except I see with my eyes and touch with my hands, I will never believe. But it is impossible to imagine anything more patient and compassionate than our Lord's treatment of this weak disciple. He does not reject him or dismiss him or excommunicate him. He deals with him according to his weakness. Surely this is a love that passeth knowledge and a patience that passes understanding. Jesus comes to those doubts and he comes to those unbelief just like he did to Thomas through the scriptures and he, and he says, don't disbelieve, believe, peace be with you. And, and, and he, he comes to us in his grace. Now, now third, if we recognize that doubt is something we all experience and if we also recognize that Jesus is a good shepherd who comes to us and who speaks into those doubts and that unbelief, then, then what should we do? We need to be vigilant to be in the scriptures. 
We need to cling to the scriptures. On those nights that I would go to bed praying, help my unbelief, I would wake up the next morning and just dive in the scriptures because this was all I had. Because I had nothing else I could do. I knew if my doubts are going to turn into faith, then I need to read this until God comes to me, until Christ comes to me, and he changes what I'm experiencing, and he overcomes those doubts, and he overcomes that unbelief. And so you just cling to the scriptures, and you immerse yourself in the Bible, and you actively wait for Jesus to work in us that which we cannot work in ourselves, because faith is not a light switch that we can turn on. Jesus works faith in us through the word. He encounters us through the word. And so cling to the scriptures, open the scriptures, immerse yourself in the word of God. Because these are written so that we may believe that he is the Christ. Finally, church, we need to remember that our salvation is not based on how much faith we have. It's based on who our faith is in. It's not, it's not about the amount of faith, it's about the object of faith, isn't it? So, I have a confession to make. I've never seen an Indiana Jones movie. Never have. Confess. But I have seen some clips, and I'm going to act like I've seen a movie by referencing a clip from one of those movies right now. But I've not seen it, alright? So, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indy, I think that's what they call him, right? In, Indy is, is on some journey. Like I said, I've not seen it, so I have no idea where he's going or what he's doing. But he's on a journey to, to do something special and spectacular. <laughs> it's clear from the scene that I've seen that one of his friends is in a, in, in a bad shape here and looks like he's going to die if Indy doesn't get to him, all right? So that's, that's, that's the context. Indy gets running, 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 running with his, with his book, and then he gets to a chasm. And, and it just goes as far down as you can see, and there's no way he can jump across. It's, just too, it's too far. And he looks in his little book, and, and it says, take a leap of faith. And, and Indy says that there's no way I can make that jump. And then, and then he hears his friend crying out for help, and he knows he needs to do something. And he, he looks, and, and, he, and he's thinking, and he closes his eyes, and he takes a deep breath. And, and what he does is he steps out and lets his foot fall and what, what's under him, but an invisible bridge that just appears before him. And he realizes that, 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 that I can get across this now. But he couldn't see it until he took that step of faith, right? Now, what saved Indy from falling into that chasm? Was it his faith or was it the bridge? It was the bridge, wasn't it? His faith had nothing to do with him not falling into that chasm. He, he obviously was very scared when he stepped onto that. He, he obviously was doubting whether he was going to even survive. He, it's not like he had this perfect faith in that moment. He was scared. He was, he was feeling the way that, that, that this could not go well for me, but he stepped out, and there was a bridge under him, and it was firm, and it was solid, and he got across. But if that bridge wasn't there, no matter how much faith he had, if that bridge wasn't there, what would have happened to Indiana Jones? We would not have had any more Indiana Jones movies, right? <laughs> He would have fallen to his death, and that's the end of the series, right there. But the object of his faith was there, and it was strong, and it was firm. And even though his faith wasn't perfect, he stepped out onto it, and the object of his faith was firm. And, and, and church, that is the reality for us. Our life 
will always be a mixture of unbelief with belief, of, of faith with doubt, of confidence with fear. We will never have a perfect faith. At times it will be greater, at times it will be weaker, but the object of our faith is a firm foundation beneath our feet. He is Lord and God. He was dead and he's alive. He is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the good shepherd who will not let anyone snatch us out of his hand. And so let's not rest our confidence this morning on how much faith we have. Do not rest your confidence in your salvation on how much faith you have. Rest your confidence on who your faith is in. Confess with Thomas, my Lord and my God. And we have a firm foundation to build our lives on there. Let's sing and worship Jesus as our Lord and God this morning. You can stand and we'll sing together.